This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In this presidential election cycle, immigration is once again a major issue in political stump speeches. The first thing is building a wall, which Mexico will pay for. We have done what by any fair estimate would have to conclude is a good job, quote, securing the border. So let's get about the business of comprehensive immigration reform. Major flaws in the nation's immigration system have grabbed headlines, including a troubling Connecticut case. Last month, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General released a report on the case of Haitian national Jean-Jacques. He served time in Connecticut prison for attempted murder. After completing his sentence, the federal government's efforts to deport him went nowhere, so he was released. And just last month, Jacques was convicted of killing a Norwich woman, 25-year-old Casey Chadwick. Why was Jacques allowed to stay? The inspector general investigated the case after the urging of several members of Connecticut's congressional delegation. One of them was Connecticut's 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. He'll join us in just a moment. Later, we'll talk with attorneys about the immigration laws in our country to go beyond political rhetoric to find out how the system really works. You, too, can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. On the phone with us now is Representative Joe Courtney. Congressman Courtney, thanks for joining Where We Live today. Good morning, Lucy. First off, when did you first hear about the Jean-Jacques case? Um, well, when uh, Casey uh, Chadwick was brutally murdered in Norwich, uh, it was obviously something that was front-page news all over the district. And, um, uh, and the Norwich Police Department did an outstanding job of quickly um, investigating and identifying uh, the perpetrator uh, when they arrested John Jack uh, almost the same day uh, on a drug violation and then following up uh, some leads, they uh, were able to tie him to this um, really sickening uh, homicide. At the time of his presentment, um, it was uh, again reported by the bail commissioner that Mr. Jacques uh, actually uh, had been ordered out of the country. Um, he had gone through the full process of deportation and had a prior conviction for uh, homicide, attempted murder. Uh, it took place in 1992. So again, this is a case where um, actually the system uh, did what it was supposed to do to a point, which was that uh, while he was incarcerated, ICE proceeded with a deportation um, hearing and uh, a judge ordered uh, him uh, you know, ejected from the country. He completed his sentence, corrections, released him into the custody of uh, ICE. He was held for roughly about 180 days, which is the Supreme Court sort of cut off for how long you can hold somebody um, who, uh, again, is not uh, being you know, put on an airplane uh, or you know, other means of transportation out of the country and um, was in the community uh, for well over a year or so uh, when uh, this uh, homicide took place. Uh, again, myself, Dick Blumenthal, Chris Murphy, you know, we had a number of meetings with uh, the department. Uh, frankly, the um, chronology and uh, forensics of, you know, what happened here was completely unsatisfactory, and that's when we asked the inspector general, mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, again, is a really serious um, professional office to just sort of go through um, this case, uh, and they issued their uh, findings uh, again uh, last few weeks or so. This morning, the Office of uh, or the Committee on Government Oversight is going to be holding a hearing in about 20 minutes to sort of uh, go through uh, this issue of where you've got someone who, again, there's no dispute about the fact that um, this is a person who does not belong in the country. They've had you know all their due process rights uh, through the deportation 
hearing process uh, who, uh, again, are, is not being um, repatriated because of the fact that the receiving country um, has repeatedly denied, um, you know, efforts to get the, the individual moved. Uh, and again, there were three instances, according to the IG's report, where actually a plane mm -hmm. ticket was uh, purchased, and uh, at the last minute, uh, the government of Haiti uh, refused to accept him. Congressman, uh, I wanted to just highlight some of that report again yeah. after you and your colleague, Senator Murphy and, and Blumenthal, asked the DHS Inspector General to investigate. The highlights of that report were ICE was unable to secure the proper documents proving that Jacques was nationality to send him back to Haiti. That's why the country refused to accept him. Um, it also said ICE did not follow its own removal guidelines, which included contacting the State Department when a country rejects a citizen that the U.S. wants to deport. Um, it went on to say ICE did not take steps that could have strengthened the case for removal, such as interviewing his family members for additional verification of his nationality or requiring Jacques himself to personally secure such documents himself, uh, a condition of his release. And I think the most glaring um, problem when you look at this case is that they, you said that um, the government couldn't go past the 180 days to detain him, and if they couldn't deport him to ICE, they released him, but they did not supervise him once right. he was released. I mean, that's pretty troubling. No, it's appalling. And uh, I think the other fact that was reported that I think is just sickening is that the uh, case that the office that administers this program for ICE, which was based out of Newark, had uh, basically about four or five uh, case workers there and 37,000. Uh, pending uh, individuals in the community. Uh, as you point out, um, you know, there are some guidelines in terms of prioritizing, uh, you know, which cases should get the, the focus of the office. Uh, and, th and to me, this one should have screamed out the, the fact that, I mean, he was clearly a violent uh, felon who, again, had already exhausted all of his rights in terms of uh, being removed from the country. And yet, the uh, there is no sort of uh, system in place that's at either articulated clearly or being followed that basically prioritizes individuals uh, like Mr. Jacques. They, the caseworkers basically said they, they you know, picked the cases that they knew were going to be the easiest <clears throat> in terms of just their experience with uh, different uh, other countries to, to move people uh, out of the country. So, um, so again, there's obviously a larger question of an immigration reform um, and, uh, you know, prioritizing people like Mr. Jacques, whose criminal history, again, um, you know, made him totally and completely um, outside of any, uh, I think, defensible position to be in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, there also, I think, is serious questions about the way ICE is running its system mm -hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, the, the training it gives to, to the folks who work in the system and also, you know, putting some metrics in place about, you know, which cases really get uh, top billing in terms of priority. And, and that did not happen here. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. On the phone with us is 2nd District Congressman Joe Courtney. In just a few moments, he's going to be waving on to a House Oversight and Government Reform Committee hearing in Washington to talk about a, a troubling case here in Connecticut, a Haitian national Jean-Jacques, who uh, served a, a prior uh, conviction in Connecticut State Prison for attempted murder. Um, he was unable to be deported. Uh, ICE tried several times back to Haiti. Haiti said they didn't have 
proof of his nationality. So the government didn't know what to do with him. They ended up releasing him. And then he went on and was convicted of the murder of 25-year-old Casey Chadwick. If you've been following this case and you want to chime in, the phone number 860-275-7266. I wanted to just uh, bring up that Senator Blumenthal spoke about that IG report that was released last month during a Senate Judiciary Committee meeting. Here's what Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson told Senator Blumenthal about efforts to deport dangerous people like Jean-Jacques from this country. We have, over the last two years, stepped up our efforts and, frankly, our pressure on a number of these countries. We've entered into MOUs to take back more of their people, but very clearly this is a work in progress, and at some point um, I'm going to advocate that we use the ultimate sanction we have available to us, which is to deny visas to these countries if we don't see more progress. Uh, Congressman Courtney, this isn't the first time that that option has come up, right? Have there been other, legis- have there been other leg- legislation um, to you know, compel these countries to take back citizen, um, c- citizens of their country if they've been convicted of crimes such as Jean-Jacques? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the legal authority for uh, DHS to you know, raise the stakes as far as countries that are balking at accepting individuals like Mr. Jacques, uh, to be honest with you, they have been on the books uh, already. I mean, this is something that uh, was within the State Department's discretion. What I think the IG's report focused on was that, again, the um, you know sort of integration between uh, Homeland Security and the Department of State is just you know totally dysfunctional. And you know there was a, the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding that uh, Secretary Johnson, who I have a great deal of respect for, uh, referred to. I mean, frankly, was late in the process, and clearly, as the IG's report indicates, um, this thing was not taken up the food chain, this case, uh, after three tries uh, to, to remove him from, from the country. So, um, so I do think you're, you're going to see a second report from the IG's office about uh, ways to strengthen, both through, I think, the administrative process and, and uh, potentially through, uh, you know, a congressional action to, to try and tighten this um, system so that people are, who, again, have been clearly identified as uh, you know, not legally in the country through the deportation process and clearly um, should be at the highest level of priority are going to move their way through the system. I, one quick point before I get off, I wanted to mention this is the second hearing mm-hmm. that the committee has actually held uh, last spring after uh, Jacques was convicted of uh, murder. Uh, Casey's mother uh, Wendy Hartling actually came down here to D.C. and uh, you know I'll tell you as a parent, uh, you know, watching her testify and talk about um, you know the facts of this case, uh, you know, she's just an amazing person. She again diligently attended every single court hearing with her attorney Chester Fairley from New London, and um, uh, and and I, I really think you know she deserves a lot of credit for the fact that um, you know this issue which really took a while to emerge at the national level, um, is now getting the focus that it deserves in in Washington. Uh, Congressman Courtney, before you head to that um, committee hearing, I wanted to ask you, we heard Senator Blumenthal and and DHS Secretary uh, Jay Johnson talking about this idea of uh, putting sanctions on certain countries who refuse to take back their citizens um, when the U.S. government wants to deport them. Is that something that you are supporting? I mean, what are some other steps to get rid of this gap? So, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you don't have uh, a remedy for, um, you know, recalcitrant um, blocking by other countries, then, uh, frankly, you're just going to, you know, end up in this uh, loop where the Supreme Court case is going to, you know, put the our um, 
you know, public safety system at risk uh, if people have, are being released and, and you can't move them as they should be moved uh, through the uh, deportation process. And, and at some point, uh, as Dick, you know, said at that hearing, uh, you know, this country, we're not helpless here. We have tools that we can exercise. And, uh, and, and again, there's, a, a, I think, an escalating sort of series of steps that the State Department can utilize so that, you know, you're, you're giving people at least a fair warning in, in other countries that, um, you know, we, we mean business. Obviously, the visa uh, system is precious to a lot of countries who want, uh, you know, business, you know, um, relationships in the U.S. and education relationships in the U.S. So it, it is, in my opinion, a very potent uh, measure that can be used to, to, to make this system work better. And as I said, the, part of the problem which the IG report um, identified was, again, not just having the tools available, but, you know, DHS and state have, have to do a better job of working together and you know the the comments from the DHS uh, officers that they didn't bring this case to to state's attention because they only thought they they would you know take up cases involving terrorism you know which were just these totally sort of uh you know seat of the pants opinions that have no bearing in terms of you know the the policy manuals uh you know the the regs that are on the books and um, and and they frankly got to rearrange their resources so that they've got people you know adequate um people to, to handle these, the, the caseload, which, uh, again, you know, even the most high-functioning um, officers with that kind of a caseload is going to struggle. I want to take a quick call. Uh, ben from Wallingford, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I just want to say that I think we're looking at this case wrong, where this was a failure of the criminal justice system to identify this person as a killer and not a failure of the immigration system not a failure of the immigration system to uh, deport someone. And if we make case law based on this terrible case, then we're going to be denying some people who are proper immigrants and want to be here. Uh, ben, I, I just wanted you to clarify a little bit about your point. Why, how is this a failure of the criminal justice system? He was convicted of a, attempted murder. He served time in Connecticut prison. He was released, and then he can, was convicted of another crime. What do you think should have happened to Jean-Jacques? Well, obviously, he should have been either incarcerated or re- rehabilitated so he wouldn't commit another crime. And when, when we say that, oh, our, our solution is to dump a murderer onto another country, then we're not solving the problem. We're just pushing it off to someone else. All right, Ben, we, we hear your point. And Congressman Courtney, uh, before you go, can you respond to what Ben had to say? Well, again, the, the, I, I think your um, comment that the criminal justice system, the Department of Corrections, I mean, they, they incarcerated him. He was released. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, this individual was, went through the full deportation processes, your guests later, I think, can, can attest. I mean, there are, that is not a, um, you know, sort of knee-jerk system. I mean, you, you, people have rights to, to challenge, um, you know, questions that the caller, you know, may feel, um, you know, have to be raised in, fair, you know, in terms of fairness and due process, et cetera. But um, if we can't deport someone who's convicted of a violent offense, then, frankly, that's really, I think, going to, create grave problems in terms of public support for our immigration system. I mean, I, I think, um, again, as someone who supported the president's executive order, and I've been a co-sponsor of measures similar to what came through the Senate a couple of years ago to get some rational uh, changes in the system here, 
I mean, the fact of the matter is, though, that, um, you know, our, our system should not just sort of be, um, you know, blind to the fact that there's some individuals that um, who, who really don't merit, um, you know, uh, residency in this country when, when they are convicted of these kinds of offenses. And, and this has been on the books for years in terms of uh, being able to deport people of, of serious felonies. And, uh, and really what this case is about is, is really trying to make that system function um, the way it's, it's supposed to, uh, you know, both through um, statutory law and administrative law. And that did not happen in this case. I want to thank Congressman Joe Courtney from the 2nd District for joining us. Um, he, I know he has to go on to a committee here, and we're going to hear more from your office, I'm sure, about how to handle this uh, the serious flaw in our immigration system. I want to thank you for your time today. Thank Lucy. So who is being deported? These gaps in policies that allow people like Jean-Jacques to remain here, how long have they existed in our immigration system? An immigration attorney joins us in studio. We'll take more of your questions and comments. That number, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Recent statistics from the Department of Homeland Security show that in 2015 alone, thousands of immigrants with criminal convictions, including violent crimes like attempted murder and assault, have been able to remain in the U.S. despite efforts to deport them. That's because their native countries refused to take them back. That's what happened in the case of Haitian national Jean-Jacques. In April, he was convicted of murdering a Norwich woman. And this wasn't the first time he'd been convicted of a violent crime in this country. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me now is Anthony Collins, an immigration attorney with Collins and Martin, a firm in Wethersfield. Hi, Anthony. Welcome to where we live. Good morning. Um, I asked you to come on to the show because I felt like we really needed an expert because we know immigration law is very complex. When you look at a case like Jean-Jacques and how the government was unable to deport him, when you look at that report, what are some things that really stand out to you? Um, there were a, a couple of things that uh, I noticed. Um, number one was uh, that Mr. Jacques was ordered deported in 2003. I don't think the report is correct in, in that regard. He had a final order of removal, removal from 2003 and was in state custody for at least another seven years. And he arrived in the United States in 1992, and it's kind of surprising that uh, during that entire process, there was never any ability or effort to actually get those identity documents that would make his removal that much easier. So. Um, there was that opportunity while he was in state custody, I think, um, for DHS to um, do that, and also during the removal proceedings. Um, the other thing that I noticed was that um, the state of Connecticut does have a program where uh, when a person with an outstanding order of removal uh, reaches their uh, uh, the point where they can apply for parole, um, they can be paroled to immigration for de deportation purposes. and. It doesn't seem like that happened either, um, where he could have been paroled to, to DHS to be deported, and I don't know why that didn't happen. And then finally, I really was kind of surprised that uh, of the lack of cooperation between DHS and the State Department. I've never actually had a uh, personal experience with that, and I've always wondered um, how much cooperation there is, and the lack of that in this case was, was uh, pretty informative.
I think that Inspector General report, um, again, pointed out that as part of the removal uh, guidelines that ICE follows, that they, at the point when they were having trouble deporting Jean-Jacques, they should have reached out to the State Department, and that didn't happen. That's, that's correct. I want to take a call now. Um, Mike from Bristol. Mike from Bristol, you're on where we live. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Uh, what do I you thought, like to go? Uh, ahead. Well, I'd like to first of all say I thought the congressman's explanation of everything was very, very uh, well done. And, and I appreciate you having uh, an immigration attorney on the phone. But, you know, I, I think the, the bottom line here is that it's people, people that did not do their jobs. And, and this is the problem with our government all over, state and federal. People aren't doing their jobs, and the people who aren't doing their jobs aren't being held accountable. The congressman said these laws are on the books and they're not being used. Well, who's actually doing the work? Because they're not doing the work correctly, and the taxpayers deserve better. If we did this kind of crappy work at our jobs, we would have been fired. Point taken, Mike. I'll have uh, Anthony Collins respond. Again, he's an immigration attorney uh, based in Wethersfield in studio with me. I think something that Congressman Courtney said in the earlier in the segment that there was a when they investigated this, it also showed that um, the people within ICE um, that are responsible for trying to deport individuals, um, they've got a pretty significant caseload. Yeah, they do. There's there's from I was surprised to see that the Harford office has 10,000 people under their supervision. I had no idea they had that many people. Um, but the caller is right in terms of priorities. Uh, I think from higher up, there, has, there was some dysfunction there in terms of determining what the priori- priorities are. And one of the key things that I see is that this office is uh, super- supervising people that are in removal proceedings that have no criminal record, and they also, they're also supervising people with serious criminal records. And it, it, it seems to me that there should be a division there, that they should have someone uh, dedicated to those people with serious criminal records with outstanding orders of removal, um, and they should not lose sight of those cases. And that's an interesting point when you think about when we look at the priorities under DHS. The number one priority is to uh, deport dangerous individuals who have no status in the country. And um, I, obviously through your immigration um, background, immigration law background, and who your clients are, that's not the case, right? Who are the people that are being deported in this country? Well, um, I have to say they are pretty effective at deporting uh, people with serious criminal records. And if they have the travel documents, those people uh, are usually deported um, fairly quickly. Um, but in terms of uh, – could you – the question again? What was that? I was just curious. Who are the people that are being deported if they don't – if they're not – you're saying that they are going after uh, can, people with criminal convictions. But there have been, I think, a recent report that 20,000 people with criminal convictions in 2015 alone were not deported because their countries wouldn't take them back. I mean that is still a, a big number. Yeah, that is a big number, and, and that is an issue. But that, that comes back to um, trying to get these countries to accept uh, these people. and. In this case, it's, some, it's interesting because Mr. Jock came here and he had no identity documents. So it, I think Haiti um, has been difficult in accepting people. But on the other hand, I think they also had an issue as to is he truly a Haitian national. Um, so there was that, that issue that since 1992 that could have been developed over the years that could have been resolved. You also made a point that um, when Jean-Jacques was released from uh, Connecticut 
prison after completing his sentence, he could have been paroled. Can you talk specifically about that? Because what would that have been? Would that have been an electronic bracelet on him? They would have known where he was and been able to monitor him more effectively? No, actually, it's a it's a very simple process. Mm-hmm. A person with an outstanding order of deportation, uh, when they go before the Connecticut Board of uh, Pardons and Parole, when they are paroled, they're not released mm-hmm. uh, uh, to the community. They are released to, to DHS custody for DHS to deport them so that uh, Connecticut has the assurance that this person that they've paroled is not going to be walking in the streets. Um, and I, I know that that program is in effect. I don't know how effective it, it is, but uh, uh, um, that, that's that been on the books in Connecticut for quite some time. And uh, it, there's key, the, the key issue is the person has to have an outstanding order of, of mm-hmm. removal to qualify for this. So that wasn't done. What about monitor him, monitoring him in the community when he was released? Yeah, that's another surprising thing about this report because we have m- numerous clients that uh, have no criminal record who are in removal proceedings that are on, on electronic bracelets. And that program uh, is not used for people such as Mr. Jacques who um, can't be removed. And I don't understand why a case such as his would not be a priority for that program for electronic monitoring. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're looking at the case of Jean-Jacques. He's a Haitian national who had a criminal, a violent criminal background, uh, was not able to be deported because of a, a loophole in the policy in the terms of they wouldn't, Haiti would not accept him when the United States tried to deport him back to that country because Haiti said there were no documents to prove that Jean-Jacques was a Haitian national. I want to take a call from Dick from Guilford. You're on where we live. Yes, Hello. Um, my, my question was this, and it really goes back to the previous caller's questions about our criminal justice system. If we look at this particular case, it stands out because of the question of this person being an immigrant. But on the other hand, the real question is, how does the criminal justice system handle the vast number of people who are American citizens who are released to the community and, make this, uh, and commit the second crime? Uh, we're not protected when that second crime is committed, whether it's by a foreign national or by an American citizen. And it seems to me the fundamental question here, the vast majority of questions, are how do we deal with the people who make that second crime? All right, Dick, thank you for calling uh, the show. Uh, Anthony, did you want to respond? Well, someone that that, I I know that Mr. Jock was under, uh, still under the supervision of the state of Connecticut after he was released and was picked up on a a, a violation of parole for, I think, selling drugs uh, before his arrest on on the murder. so that's another question as to whether the state is supervising people enough after they're released, uh, particularly after having committed a, a violent crime. But I, I also the question that Ben raised earlier was interesting in terms of um, what does it mean to, to send these people back? Uh, and the uh, somebody like Jean Jacques, I think clearly because he never had um, permanent residence in the United States, never had appeared to have legal status, should have been sent back. But then this country also deports people that have been here as permanent residents for many years and send them back to countries where they have really no, uh, have had no contact. And uh, we've seen that happen with Central America where vast numbers of people that were raised in the United States have been sent back to Central America and it's created this gang violence issue and somewhat, and and destabilized those countries. Well, you made a point earlier that you said that the government is uh, working and does, a, I guess, a good job, unless, 
when you don't look at the Jean-Jacques case of deporting people um, that have been convicted of certain crimes. When we look at the, uh, the system as a whole, when we look at the people being deported, I mean, who makes up that majority? Is it the people from Central America that are um, we hear so often from politicians that are coming across the border and then they send them back and they find another way? Well, the majority of people that are deported, um, at least statistic-wise, um, are Mexicans. I think 156,000 Mexicans were deported last year, and then the next group um, are Guatemalans, and then um, other people from Central American countries. But those the, uh, uh, th- those are the people that are, are being deported, and, and most of those are deported not on criminal grounds, mm-hmm. but on, on uh, immigration violations. And Congressman Courtney had also um, made the point that, um, you know, this has been a, an ongoing problem. And so when we hear that there's going to be another committee hearing uh, to look at issues within our our, uh, our system, I mean, I mean, you've been doing this for some time. Uh, you're practicing immigration law. I mean, what are some of the uh, measures that can be taken to fix the system? Well, I, I think this really comes back to comprehensive immigration reform. Um, these laws were passed 20 years ago. They've been subject to quite a bit of litigation. And I think anybody who works in this area could see that they need to go back and look at these laws. Uh, the, the Supreme Court ruling um, dealing with the release of, of, uh, uh, of, of people with final orders of removal that, that can't be deported, the Zavidas uh, decision, um, that needs to be, there needs to be some legislation um, in terms of uh, how that 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 rule is implemented, um, and I think the Supreme Court said that in their decision that there was an absence of, of uh, le- legislative direction there. Um, so they really need to go back and look at uh, these laws and see what's working and, and what's not working. And in terms of what people, what crimes should make people deportable and what crimes should not be. Uh, at the present time, a shoplifting offense can make somebody deportable, but not a DUI. Um, so there's some real uh, problems with. Uh, our, our, our immigration system right now, as everybody knows. And meanwhile, the people that are within the system that are, um, have these removal proceedings, not all of them get fair representation. Yeah, a person that's in removal proceedings does not have the right to an attorney. Mm-hmm. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Anthony Collins is in studio with me. He's an immigration attorney with a firm uh, based in Wethersfield. Uh, we're talking about um, immigration reform and specifically looking at the case of Jean-Jacques. He was a na- Haitian national, again, uh, that the government tried to deport back to Haiti. Haiti wouldn't accept him because they said he had no paperwork to prove that he was a, uh, a national of that country. And then he went on to commit and be convicted of a, another murder. Um, if you have a question for Anthony Collins about uh, how the immigration system works, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. You can reach us at where we live, uh, WMPR, and uh, Twitter, Facebook, at where we live. I want to read a tweet from Jessica. She says, immigration is vital in this country, but we need laws and a process that everyone needs to follow or else it's chaos. I think most people would agree with you, uh, Jessica. And I wanted to turn back to you, Anthony Collins. Well, again, when you talk about the people that you, your firm represents, I mean, what are some of the issues uh, that they have before them and, and how quickly are those issues remedied? Well, we have had a number of people that uh, that I consider refugees that have come from um, the violence in Central America, from the gang violence in, in Central America. And uh, they've made it to Connecticut, um, and most of them have asylum claims pending. And a number of those people are 
on electronic monitoring. And that, that to me, that, that uh, is, um, that concerns me. Why are these people on electronic mon monitoring when they have, most of them do have legitimate claims for asylum. I don't think there's really an issue about them appearing in court, whereas somebody like Mr. Jock was not subject to that monitoring. That's, that, uh, uh, that concerns me. Mm -hmm. And uh, having a lot of these people on this monitoring program, it's, it's, uh, it can be very difficult having that bracelet on your ankle uh, in terms of having it charged. It can be very uncomfortable. Um, I would hope that that program was maybe used more intelligently. One thing we haven't talked about yet is cost, uh, cost of our immigration system, especially when there are proceedings in, in immigration court here in Hartford, um, for instance. Um, you know, what is the cost of taxpayers when you look at these very many cases that are in the system? Some, you know, people are getting deported. Some people are waiting, getting uh, deferred action, which means that um, they're able to stay um, for another year before they apply again. I mean, what is the cost to Americans? Um, that is an interesting question, and I've wondered about that myself. Um, when I see this uh, monitoring program, it's run by a, uh, a private company, BI Incorporated, and I was before this program, I was trying to find out how much money they are making from these monitoring programs and how effective it really is. Uh, yeah, the, the the costs are substantial. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we had a way to uh, the, People that are here, maybe without status, there should be who've been here for many years, who have family here. They should have work permits, so they're contributing to the system that they're paying taxes. Uh, part of the reason we're doing this show too is again, it's an election year. We hear from uh, presumptive presidential candidates like Donald Trump, who say, you know, immigration officials should simply find and deport the estimated 11 million immigrants living here illegally. Is it that simple, Anthony? No, that's I think a very uninformed. Uh, uh, viewpoint. Um, I would say at least half, if not three-quarters of the, those people have connections to the United States in the form of children that are U.S. citizens or parents or spouses, and it's not that simple. And, and a lot of them contribute greatly to the society, culturally, mm -hmm. economically. Um, it would just be a huge loss for this country to take that approach. You know, of course, people um, some of them do have criminal records, and that should be dealt with. But uh, overall, I just I, I, I don't understand um, that viewpoint in the sense that how much it would cost economically to do that, uh, to deport all those people. They all have um, due process rights. They're, they're not, I, I don't think we – what they're talking about is almost abandoning the Constitution in order to affect that, that removal. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. That's Anthony Collins, an immigration attorney with law firm Collins & Martin. He's in studio with me today as we talk about one part of our immigration system, deportation policies that are anything but simple. When we come back from the break, we'll hear more about the immigrants that the federal government is working to deport. These people often are not public safety threats, and that's the focus on them. It doesn't necessarily mean that the ICE follows that their first priority, which is to deport dangerous criminals from this country. You too can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the Republican and Democratic national conventions are just around the corner, and both parties are expected to nominate two of the most unpopular candidates in recent history, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Now, maybe you've already picked a candidate to support, but beyond the question of who you'll be voting for this November, we want to know what you'll be voting for, what issues matter most to you, your family, your community. Please join the conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're discussing a perennial and controversial issue in election years. That's how to reform our nation's immigration system. Anthony Collins is an immigration attorney with Collins and Martin in Wethersfield. He's in studio with me. And on the phone now is Munir Ahmad, a clinical professor of law at Yale Law School and co-teaches in the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Munir. Good morning. Um, Tell us first a little bit about your clinic. We uh, represent uh, immigrants and low-wage workers uh, in, in throughout the state of Connecticut. Uh, our students at Yale Law School provide representation uh, to uh, immigrants individually as well as the organizations, particularly community-based organizations, that advocate on behalf of immigrants and low-wage workers in the state. Um, so we have a, a pretty broad array of clients in both litigation and non-litigation matters. Uh, and our students uh, have the, um, the experience of providing direct representation uh, to these groups and helping to contribute to um, the development of a robust community of immigrants' rights advocates in Connecticut and uh, in the nation. Um, for the people that your uh, clinic uh, represents, I mean, often are they in deportation proceedings because they may have come here um, um, without documents? Or, I mean, talk about how some of them end up in the removal proceedings. Well, people end up in removal proceedings in, in all sorts of ways, and it's true that there are some who uh, are uh, facing deportation because they uh, either came without a documentation or they may have overstayed a visa. Um, we represent a great many clients who are long-term residents of Connecticut, um, oftentimes who have had a green card for decades and then faced deportation. Uh, one of our clients, for example, a man named Arnold Giamarco, who came to Connecticut in 1960 at the age of four. Uh, he lived in Connecticut for 51 years. He was a veteran of the Army in the Connecticut National Guard. Uh, he got married. He had a daughter. Uh, he applied to naturalize, but uh, the government actually never adjudicated his application. And then 51 years after he arrived, uh, ICE deported him based on an old shoplifting and possessory drug conviction charges. So um, it's not, you know, the, the idea that, that the deportation machinery of the government is focused um, exclusively on uh, hardened criminals or on uh, this myth of, of people sneaking into the country to kind of do damage um, is really belied by the, the real lives of the immigrants that we see day in and day out. So Mr. Giammarco had legal status in the country, held a green card for most of his life. He was deported, you said, for a, a shoplifting charge? Shoplifting and possessory drug conviction charges. And his was a, a case, too, where um, he, uh, he had applied to naturalize and had the government actually adjudicated his application, uh, he would have been a U.S. citizen, in which case he wouldn't have been subject to deportation. And, you know, that highlights... Uh, really two of the many problems in the immigration system. One is that there's just a a very high level of dysfunction in terms of um, the bureaucracy handling 
uh, applications in a timely way so that people have the benefit or the protection that they deserve. And the second is uh, sometimes the arbitrariness of citizenship. Um, had the application been approved, Mr. Giamarco uh, would have been considered fully a member of our society and not subject to deportation. Uh, had, but because uh, for unexplained reasons, the government never actually adjudicated it, uh, he's uh, treated like persona non grata and subject to really uh, banishment from the only life that he had known for 51 years. And you can contrast his case to Jean-Jacques, again, someone who had no legal status in this country, can, uh, can, was convicted of a serious crime, attempted murder, spent several uh, years in state prison, got out, was unable to be deported um, because of this, uh, this gap this, uh, that where Haiti says they would not take him back because they don't have documentation that he is really a citizen of Haiti. And then he goes and commits another crime and is convicted of that as well. And now he's sitting in prison yet again. I want to take a call from Kathy uh, from Norwich. Kathy, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Um, I'm also I'm calling because of Mr. Giamarco also and Mr. Jacques. I live in Norwich, um, so I live in the town where Mr. Jacques committed this murder. And, um, and I also know the Giamarco family. And it, I wanted to ask the immigration attorneys what grounds did they generally have in deporting someone, particularly someone who is here legally, like Mr. Giamarco, um, who has a family, he's married and has a child, and they just come and take him out of his home, put him in, you know, hold him um, without, without a chance of release until they deport him back to a country that he really doesn't know because he's up there at age four. Um, what are their basis? I mean, I, I heard the um, Yale professor, and I know that they are working on this case, and I'm hoping that Mr. Giamarco gets back, because as I said, I know the family, and I, I'm just appalled at the whole situation. Well, thank you, Kathy, for your call. I want to have uh, both attorneys uh, answer your your question. First, uh, Munir, well, she wants to know, you know, what guidelines does the government use on who they choose to deport? Well, the government has a great deal of authority um, to deport people for convictions of even very minor crimes. Uh, shoplifting is a good example of that. Passing a bad check is another example. Um, they uh also have um, a great deal of authority to um, exercise discretion in terms of which cases they'll pursue and in which they won't. And I think the Giamarco case is uh, a good, uh, uh, painful example of the ways in which the government has exercised that discretion quite poorly. Um, I should say that once proceedings are begun and someone like Mr. Giamarco ends up before an immigration judge, because of changes to the immigration law that date back to 1996, um, the immigration judges don't have a great deal of discretion. It's a very unforgiving system once the formal process has begun. Um, and the ability to weigh the equities, um, such as the, the duration of residence in the country and family ties and community ties and so forth, is really quite constrained. Uh, but the uh, Department of Homeland Security maintains a great deal of discretion and authority in deciding which cases it wants to prosecute and and how. Uh, and unfortunately, it's um, oftentimes 
exercises that discretion in, in a really uh, poor and unfortunate way. I, I would just add quite quickly, quickly, there's another case um, that arises from raids, uh, home raids that uh, that ICE conducted back in 2007 in the Fairhaven neighborhood, a very um, predominantly Latino neighborhood of New Haven, where ICE agents went door to door uh, and arrested people uh, in a, a racially targeted way. People who looked to be Latino got swept up. 32 people got arrested in the course of those raids just days after New Haven had uh, approved a municipal ID program for its residents. Uh, we continue to represent a client from those 2007 raids. Here we are nine years later, and the government uh, uh, continues to defend what really uh, ought to have uh, been considered indefensible, indefensible conduct by uh, ICE agents over a decade, nearly a decade ago. And Anthony Collins, again, an immigration attorney here in studio with me, uh, you know, Kathy from Norwich, again, wanted to know, you know, what guidelines does the government use and how they choose who to deport? Well, I agree with uh, Munir that it's a it's a very mechanical system that and um, the legislation from 20 years ago basically took away a, uh, a lot of uh, discretion from the immigration judge. There is a, a complete lack of uh, propor- proportionality between um, uh, what happens to people. Um, uh, it doesn't take into account uh, the length of their residence. Uh, certain crimes are treated much more severely than other crimes, and that doesn't, that, that doesn't make sense. For example, the shoplifting uh, conviction. Um, uh, sure, the person should be eligible for a waiver, and they usually are eligible for a waiver. But on the other hand, uh, people with multiple DUIs who are permanent residents, that's not a, a ground for uh, deportation. So I really think Congress needs to go back and revisit um, this law and allow uh, uh, and, and look at how this uh, this immigration leg- legislation has affected long-term permanent residents and veterans, and um, also what crimes should and should not be considered deportable. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about uh, immigration reform. Just a, a few minutes left. I wanted to ask both our guests um, when we look at the legacy of President Obama this last eight years. Um, you know, what has he done that um, in his administration that both helps and hurts uh, the clients that you represent? Um, I have to say the program for uh, children, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, has been a tremendous success. I think it's, it, it was a very courageous program. We've seen lots of kids um, get their work permits. They're going to college now, um, and uh, they're, they're good people, and uh, that's been a great program. He's also implemented a program that allows uh, relatives, spouses of U.S. citizens, and children of U.S. Uh, of U.S. citizens to um, process their, their paperwork in the United States and then get their green cards in their country. They go back to their country uh, to get their green cards, but everything is done here. That's called the I-601A program, and that, that, has, that is just a brilliant idea, and it should be expanded. Um, and it, I don't think it's a program that anyone should object to because the person is going back to their country to get their green card. Um, so those are two things that I've seen that have just been uh, um, very, very helpful. And Munir Ahmed, a clinical professor of law at Yale Law School, and you co-teach at the Worker and Immigrant Rights Advocacy Clinic, the legacy of President Obama in terms of, of the clients that you represent. Well, I think it's a mixed legacy. I think that uh, the uh, the DACA program that Tony mentions and the 6018 uh, waiver program that he mentions, uh, as well as the effort um, that the administration made for to try to provide interim relief to uh, 
the parents of U.S. citizen children and lawful permanent resident children and to expand the DACA program that unfortunately the Supreme Court um, failed to, to uh, validate this past term. Um, those all, I think, were, were very, very positive efforts. Uh, it's undercut, though, by, I think, what was a really tragic strategic decision that the administration took uh, to try to show that it was going to be tough on enforcement in order to persuade uh, Republicans to move on comprehensive immigration reform. And that decision led to uh, an average of 400,000 deportations a year over the course of uh, each of uh, the years of the Obama administration. That number's gone down a little bit in the last year or so, but essentially it's an unprecedented level of deportations and um, such that one legacy of the Obama administration is that he will have deported more people in his uh, administration than uh, any other president. And um, those are abstract numbers, uh, but when you look at them in the lives of people like uh, Mr. Giammarco and countless others, uh, they tear apart the fabric of families and communities uh, in a really uh, terrible way and, uh, and with nothing to show for it. The strategy simply didn't work. Their comprehensive immigration uh, reform uh, was brought up in 2013 and failed, and uh, there was no opportunity to bring it up again. Uh, and uh, many, many families have paid an extremely high cost for that strategic decision. Um, just under a minute, Munir, I just wanted to go back to you real quick um, when you say, uh, when we look at the legacy of President Obama, this fall, will, uh, I'm sorry, starting next year, we'll have a, a new president. Are you holding your breath that we will, this country will finally see immigration reform? Well, I am. I, I maintain an optimism. I think that uh, we face uh, a, a, a choice, unlike any that we've seen before on immigration, uh, one candidate is leading us uh, down a, a, a very dark, really venal and, uh, and, and racist path. And the other is promising to get done what um, this administration couldn't, which is real reform um, that right. will address the status of 11 million people who are living in great jeopardy. Munir Ahmed, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there. Also, Anthony Collins, an immigration attorney in Wethersfield. This is where we live.